0: A good Wednesday to you. It's July 28th. That's Ayla Brooke and the Soundmen off their album Desolation Sounds. What an honor to introduce Ayla Brooke last night at Taste of Edmonton, uh, that fabulous downtown festival. About 3,000 people there and a ton of real talkers in the mix. Amazing to meet so many of you in person and to hear this album and more, by the way, played uh, by the guys who, of course, uh, had a pin put back in it, their plans to tour that new record when the pandemic hit. They're certainly not alone. They weren't feeling sorry for themselves, but boy, did they leave it all out on the stage last night. Their drummer, Chris Sterwold, steps up to the mic and he's introducing the band, and then he gives a shout out to Real Talk from the stage. And he says when Real Talk hit the two million download mark a couple of weeks ago, he says that was pretty big for us too. their tune lift you up. You know, the one you're about to hear in just a second. He said for us to have that in front of two million or I guess four million ears was a pretty big deal for Ayla Brooke and the Soundmen. So mutual respect, mad respect. And we're so grateful for the gift of their music. You know, they donated that tune. Our theme song is donated from Fallen Tree Records and from the band. We're really grateful for it great conversations in store today all of them of course presented this entire show by the team at bitcoin well if you're wondering what's going on with crypto it's on it's it's moving this week again you know i've been talking about it i'm keeping an eye on it if if i'm going to tell you the honest truth i don't wake up in the morning and check the apps and check the world wide web and see where bitcoin's at because in my mind That's just not how I'm wired. Other people are very different. Bitcoin well knows that they have customers, partners coming from all different places on the spectrum. And they're willing to work with you and get you up to speed on what you need to know. They do it in person or over the emails. And of course, they have Bitcoin ATMs across the country. Find them under the Sponsors tab at ryanjesperson.com. Here's Ayla Brooke and the Sound Man.
1: Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson.
0: I feel like I've got a little pep in my step this morning. So, what happens when you're at a rock and roll show into late into the night and then the alarm goes in the morning and it's my wife's 40th birthday? A shout out to Carrie Skelton. If you don't know her, make sure you subscribe. Go to carrieskelton.com, follow her on Instagram. Absolutely amazing lady, and we're lucky to have her in our lives. Uh, it also means. today is i mean this show i think it's going to fly by i'm just in i'm in the mindset i think it's going to fly by when i take a look at what sarah hoyles has put together today for us in just about seven minutes we're going to have what i think is uh well it's going (sighs) to be it's a difficult conversation it's a conversation about stuff that sucks we're talking about drought right now and conditions that producers that farmers are seeing across the country right now we're going to be hearing voices from the saskatchewan cattlemen's association alberta federation of agriculture and the national farmers union that coming up in about seven minutes and we encourage your feedback we want your participation in these types of discussions real talk rj is the hashtag to use we're going to get into my jasper memories today we're bringing back i mean here's the deal this is a show that that is all about conversation right and so that when you hear an interview When you hear a position stated on this show, and then I thank the person for joining us, and then we move on, the discussion is uh, oftentimes far from over. And that's the case today. Brock Mulligan's going to join me in about an hour from now from the Alberta Forest Products Association. They reached out uh, following our interview with Paws. You remember when I talked to Becky Best Birtwistle on uh, July 21st, about a week ago today, as a matter of fact. Uh, She joined us from the Canadian Parks and Wilderness Society. So the AFPA... Reaches out and says hey you know There were a few things that that Were said there in that interview a couple of points That were made as a matter of fact five In particular that we take Particular umbrage with We take issue with and We as a show said well we're all about Conversation we're all about debate And so we're grateful to have them joining us Brock's going to come on and they'll talk about it uh, from their perspective, representing Alberta's forest industry since 1942. That coming up in about an hour, and then we're grateful to have Dr. Michael Hart joining us from the University of Calgary Indigenous Engagement. What an interesting position there! What does it mean to to when you're talking about indigenization on a, a post secondary campus or anywhere? What does it mean? And how do you make it happen? Looking forward to that conversation. That's coming up in about 90 minutes. We've got some emails we hope to get to today. We'll see how that goes. A jam-packed show. And I think we need to touch on something quickly. I think we need to touch on something before we go any further. Okay. My understanding is that a crime was committed (laughs) yesterday at the Hoyles residence, uh, prompting a kerfuffle online (sighs) in which... Well, uh, throughout which many people reached out to share similar stories of being targeted by thieves. Sarah, may we get into it? Okay. What <laughs> happened yesterday when you got home?
2: I love how you're, how you're just, it's up here. It's right up well, here. Well, I'm
0: not going any further until we get to the bottom of this.
2: A plant that I I went on the weekend. I went and I, I found a beautiful succulent. And it's not just like one little teeny tiny little thing. It was like a big massive Bunch of succulents which are gorgeous And they're perennial so they last all year long This
0: was an investment in your garden It
2: was and I lovingly found a spot For it put it in came out the next Day yesterday Gone boom Someone came And decided hey that's that's real Pretty there yeah And yoink.
0: They help themselves. (laughs) They
2: help themselves.
0: Are you finding the silver lining that this is clearly a testimony to the fact that you have great taste in choosing additions to your garden? Somebody thought it was so beautiful, they could not walk past without taking it.
2: That is where I tried to land, definitely. But then also on Twitter, as you mentioned, people were sharing, oh, this has happened to me. We've had sunflowers taken. We've had lilacs taken. We've had whole plants, tomato plants taken. We've had like... It was, it, I mean, so I felt like, yeah, I had people that I could, you know, <laughs> I could mourn.
0: I'm so grateful that you mentioned lilacs, because that reminds me, there's a family down the street that, mm-hmm. that, that are not taking good care of their lilac bushes, and I mean to go under the cover of darkness and relieve them of it.
2: See, maybe that's what people felt with my succulent. Maybe they were like... <laughs> I'm just
0: so, they, so." So how are you going to manage this? This is, it's, it, it does not qualify, the, the police, for whatever reason, have set $5,000 as the marker of like, you know, if they're theft under 5,000, which is the one where the judge is like, hey, you know, you promise not to do it again? Yeah, I won't do it again. All right, we'll see you later. And then the judge is like, no, seriously, we will see you later. But, <laughs> but we'll just let you steal from a few more. Then we will see you later. And then they're theft over 5,000, which the Americans would call grand theft or grand larceny. Is uh, that what that is? W- well, I mean, I- I'm not a lawyer. I was hoping you. I. I mean, I know that your job here is to fact check, not necessarily always with me in casual conversation. Please, or people will realize I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. But in Canada, yeah, five thousand is the marker, and the succulents fall under that. So really, the the cops aren't going to take this seriously. I apologize. You know. Well, in in my
2: heart, it's definitely worth. It was worth more than five thousand dollars. In my heart, Um, some some folks pointed out it may have been a squirrel. It could have been a rabbit. Um, They've had experience. A squirrel
0: Yeah Just going in How how Can you paint it Like this, this succulent Is it the size of About a, a pineapple Ish Yeah Okay
2: It was about that size So I would just I would love to see it Like a squirrel Dragging it down the sidewalk yeah. It would have been amazing Um, So And that's the other thing is I'm trying to find The silver lining there I'm like well maybe Because when someone Steals something I always think like Okay well they obviously Needed it more than me I try not to I try not to judge <laughs> But when it comes to a succulent, if it's a person, I'm kind of like, you didn't need the succulent. But if you're a squirrel or a rabbit, forgiveness.
0: Okay. Okay. I see. So you're discre- this is in a way, it's like a, uh, it's, it's not racism. It's species. It's speciesism. <laughs> and, uh, and, and I'm sorry to see it perpetuated here on the show. Although, you know what? Every once in a while, th- this is like how it's gone with old white guys like me. Uh, people, people don't feel sorry for old white guys because they've had it pretty good for a long time. And so every once or ever well, I mean, I that's arguable Sarah. I mean, you know I mean, <laughs> Not all old white guys, but uh, in this case, I think that the humans uh, We deserve it a little bit when it comes to gardens and what we've done, you know putting up things like chicken wire and excluding Wild animals flora and fauna, you know in, in, even invading weeds and other plants w- what we've done to them We've wiped them out really And so in this circumstance i'm okay with humans being piled on and and i and i like your attitude about you know if it was a rabbit then it's okay Yeah, something tells me i don't know much about rabbits diets, but the the succulent it's a little bit different isn't it Might throw it off.
2: I, I agree. I don't know that the the gut the yeah. gut of the rabbit would yeah.
1: would really well, be able to we'll find to- out today. <laughs>
2: exactly. I keep looking like I'm sure my neighbors are like, "What is Sarah doing?" because mm. I'm out looking around looking for, you know, remnants of a succulent.
0: What is Sarah doing this time <laughs> is what your neighbors are thinking. <laughs> On a somewhat serious note, before we actually do get serious and talk about droughts and crops, I, I won't even try to find a cute segue on this one. Yeah, don't. But uh, I did notice one of the things that was like a little bit uh, not not heartbreaking. Well, yeah, it was heartbreaking in a sense. It was tr- it was certainly troubling it was people that were chiming in and telling you uh, that they had in some circumstances had perennials that their family had like moved around and passed down. In one case, wasn't there a 90 year old uh, not a plant necessarily but a spawn Of a plant yep. you know what I'm saying like a clipping Or it was it yeah. it, it was the ancestor Of an ancestors uh, perennial And they had moved it from House to house a real talker had and, and Ultimately someone stole it that to Me like if I had my grandma Doris's raspberry bushes Or something like that and somebody stole them That's when I might snap Yeah, That's I- when I might go murder she wrote up on the neighborhood <laughs> Jessica <laughs> What's her face door to door I'm trying to remember well, how can Jessica, I Jessica Jessica look at the
2: live chat I'm sure someone, uh, someone will have it. Well, it's, you it's, An- it's
0: Angela Lansbury. this is where this is where the age barrier comes into play yeah so uh, what I'm doing here is uh, Jessica Fletcher is there the name that we we're looking have for. it. yeah uh, and uh, okay so now that we've solved all of life's problems I just wanted to actually seriously make sure that we're okay on this moving forward that you're gonna be able to keep your focus on the show. I understand that, that you would you were somewhat upset yesterday and I don't blame you.
2: I just I it felt like a violation.
0: It takes guts to do something like that, considering how many doorbell cameras people have and surveillance and all sorts of street monitoring in different ways, shapes, and forms. Something tells me it's not one of your nearby neighbors. No. It's it was somebody passing through, I think. Yeah. But they had to walk down the street with this this I <laughs> Just like this like carrying the head ripped off a doll. They're just carrying the succulent. Its roots are just kind of trailing. There's soil dripping behind them. They got to maybe it's under their shirt. You know, neighborhood watch comes by.
2: I've had lots of folks reach out to me and say, hey, we have lots of succulents. We'd love to, you know, give you some. Yeah. And I'm I like, ah, so sweet. But also, I don't know if I want to replace it because they're just going to get yoinked again.
0: Well, this is like the pet conversation we had yesterday after you lose one how soon is too soon or when is enough time (laughs) passed that you can make the replacement this is a good time no it's not (laughs) i was going to transition hot into a mention of grand dog essentials quality raw food they're probably like jess but you want to just breathe for a second just take a beat before you roll in hot on that nobody knows better how much we love our pets than the family the team Behind the family-owned Grand Dog Essentials Quality Raw Food We're really proud to partner with him here on Real Talk You know my dogs, I fed them this morning Okay, that's a bit of a white lie The birthday girl, Carrie, fed the dogs this morning But I was there when Moses and Monroe had their quality raw breakfast Uh, Some days they're eating different breakfasts with different supplements and additions Because every dog's diet is different Or at least could be if optimum health is your goal, let the team at Grand Dog help you today. The promo code RealTalk gets you 10% off your first order. Delivered to your door at Grand Dog. Ca. Also, big shout out to the team at Eden Landscaping. If you check out landscapeedmonton.ca, you'll see some of the work they've done. Although I'm starting to get on Mike's case a little bit because I know his team is out there. I know that they've got multiple projects going all the time. I want live cameras on all the job sites so Real Talkers can look in and see these projects come together. What do you think? Do lobby Eden Landscaping for live cams so we can all be... I would love to just watch somebody else work hard.
2: I would love the time lapse. You know, when it's like, sped up and you yeah. see like all the like people moving really fast and they're like, and then it all comes together. Woo!
0: And then you see the the end with all the granite laid and the paving stones and the beautiful cook center and the boulder, and you go, "That only took four minutes. That's really impressive." The team at LandscapeEdmonton.ca is the team at Eden Landscaping. Proud partners of Real Talk. All right, this is serious stuff uh sam can you you know if i just say can you call up the tweet i know you're gonna know exactly what tweet i'm talking about there were a couple of photos posted uh, from a relatively unknown twitter account as far as i could tell uh, a couple of weeks ago and it painted a pretty clear picture a very stark Contrast of what farmers across the country are looking at right now with regards to crop conditions. For those of you listening on the podcast, Kim Owen posted a couple of photos in the same spot. The left photo, the left image from last year, the right image from this year. Uh, you see a healthy crop, a thriving crop last year. This year, it is an absolute dust bowl. It's the reality for producers across the country, and we're grateful to have a panel of experts joining us today to to talk about the implications and the different angles on this. Ryder Lee is the CEO of the Saskatchewan Cattlemen's Association. The SCA's mandate is to promote and develop the Saskatchewan beef cattle industry, which involves advocacy, promotion, funding, research, and whatever else is needed. Uh, Lynn Jacobson is the president of the Alberta Federation of Agriculture, also farms uh, right here in the beautiful province of alberta of course i'm biased and we're grateful to have these two joining us today thanks for making time for us on real talk and welcome to the show okay thank you <laughs> lynn why don't we start with you uh straight up how serious is this uh <clears throat> well it's
3: uh, pretty serious <clears throat> uh although i must qualify that and say that uh the different parts of the province have different uh, problems and uh, different conditions. Uh, not everybody's in the same boat, <laughs> so to say. But uh, yeah, for a lot of the dry land farmers, uh, especially in southern Alberta, we went into the season very, very dry um, and we haven't really you know, received any significant rain for most of our area or most of the area in southern Alberta. Cardston area, down towards Waterton has been great for producers down there, from some of our members down there. Uh, in fact, I talked to a cattle <coughs> rancher um, from, from the Waterton area and they said they're not experiencing any drought at all, so they're fine. But you get farther east, uh, that's when it starts getting uh, more defined. Uh, you come up into our area, which is northeast of Lethbridge at Enchant here, And uh, the dry land crops are pretty well non-existent. Uh, There's really hardly any uh, salvage value for some of the areas, so it's getting serious. Now, I must say, uh, a lot of our area is under irrigation, so the irrigation is looking good, but we still, our yields will not be the same as they were last year too. The heat has hurt us to a certain degree on that.
0: Um, I appreciate the synopsis, and 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 we'll circle back on a whole bunch of those. Uh, I mean, I even I have some city slicker questions too, which which I'm grateful. I know in advance the two of you will tolerate them. Like. You know, for example, now let me just ask it now, Ryder, you know, for example, uh, are, do you irrigate or do you know people that do? Would you be able to speak from a position of authority on what I'm thinking? What about the cost? What if all of a sudden a producer has to irrigate way more than normal? Like I know that some of them could probably tap into rivers or have water sources maybe on their properties, but but some wouldn't. Right. I mean, is that a thing or is that a real city slicker kind of question?
4: Well, your your irrigation districts are. Are spread where they are, where there is that development already, and the the thing like like Lynn said is it's there to to augment what's coming naturally already. So even in a year like this, when when nothing's coming from the sky, it's you can't you can't replace that. You're you're supposed to be augmenting that with with what falls with what you can pull out of of your irrigation ditch or river or or lake or whatever the setup is. Saskatchewan announced a, a big expansion of, of irrigation development last year, but, um, it's kind of like a tree that you want for shade. You, you needed to do that 20 years ago. That announcement last year is kind of a 10-year build, so um, it's it's not coming online now, and and it's it's too bad. But this year illustrates really what what the resilience of irrigation infrastructure provides. You you drive through you know say Medicine Hat to Lethbridge, and. Uh, it looks a whole lot different on some fields than others. I and mean, then what's going on? Oh, well, that one's irrigated and that one's not.
0: And that that would probably have implications, I would imagine, with regards to who would insure their crops and who wouldn't, right? And 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 those types of things, right? Or what what right now are you noticing are the biggest impacts? I guess when we're talking about, you know, what might be on the radar of the Cattlemen's Association in Saskatchewan or anywhere else, you've probably got problems or you know, issues now. And then I would imagine you're also looking ahead to issues six months from now when the snow's down, you're looking to feed the cattle too, right? You're
4: bang on. Yeah. There's, there's two issues now is is what can I feed my cattle and what do they get for water and, and how's the water resource looking? And some, you know, I'd say we're in about year five of, of not very good rainfall through summers. So, you know, generally in a, in a bad year, you'd, You'd pull on some reserves that you've had, but we've been doing that for quite a while. And, you know, same with your, your runoff. You, if you drive around Saskatchewan, there's places where there was, you know, the highway was washing out in 2013 because a little dugout had become a big lake. And now you can't even, now you can see that dugout again and you're like, why did we have to reinforce this highway? Mm. <laughs> it was five years of buildup of moisture, and now it's been five years of depletion. So if you depend on dugouts or runoff or or even some creeks and rivers that usually run, you know, you figure this many months kind of thing. That's not happening. So A, you know, right now water and, and feed. And then B, yeah, am I I've turned them out onto my my hayland because there's not enough to, to make a swath. And damn it, that's what I was gonna be feeding in the winter as well. So you're you're bang on, Ryan. It's not just a right now. It's a it's a how do we get my, my breeding cows through the winter and, and, and have calves next year as
0: well. Can I say that in in the face of adversity, and and quite frankly, on a show like this, we can just say talking about stuff that just really sucks. Uh, let's also point out that you know there the, one of the silver linings is that it gets the entire country. Paying attention to how important Agriculture is because we start To discuss all of The effects of this the ripple Effects of this and how it'll affect markets And how it will affect consumers and How it may affect grocery prices and how It may affect availability of goods Right I mean Lynn I've got some friends And, and I, I acknowledge I mean you make a really Good point that you know in, in some parts of the Province in some parts of the country they're thriving which is Amazing and I hope that more people experience That um, but you know I've talked to A couple of producers personal friends of mine that have said for example their canola crops are going to be just a disaster this year uh and then of course that's going to impact markets and it's i mean i don't think most people myself included realize how big of an impact this really could have down the line
3: uh yeah you're right there uh ryan i guess it's showing up in the markets right now in the market price of wheat i mean right now you can sell number one amber derm for about 13.50 a bushel right now uh that's delivered. Canola is over $20 a a bushel. Um, That's just showing the short market or the the short supply of all those grains that they're looking at. Hard wheat is over $10, uh, which I never have sold it before at that, (laughs) I guess. And some of the other things that you see, uh, peas or pulses are, are prices have gone up so what's happening is not just in our area in western Canada it's also happening all, all through the states too and the, and the northern states of Dakotas and, and those areas are also coming in dry so this is a combination uh, that has been growing for a long long time or, or I'm not maybe not a combination but <clears throat> a problem that uh, we've been seeing for a while and the drought is Changing, uh, getting worse for us in a lot of areas. Uh, You will have areas that are receiving more rainfall, and then you'll you'll get people saying, Well, we don't have any climate change. But I think for the rest of us, uh, we're seeing the climate is changing, it's turning drier on on the most part, uh, as far as we can see at this point in time. And that's going to have an effect. When you get back to the, the cattle and feed, I guess one of the main problems, and we're talking about this at the Canadian Federation of Agriculture with all our other GFOs across the country. And we need maybe programs that can start saving, uh, I guess, the mother herd, what you talk about. Uh, there's a lot of people and, uh, and producers in Manitoba that are now selling that herd off. And Saskatchewan is starting to have sales and some, some in Alberta is also having sales. And sorry to say, most of those cattle are probably gonna end up in the slaughter market, they're going to end up as, you know, hamburger or whatever, uh, because really there is not an area that they can go to in a lot of cases. So we're going to see probably a slide in prices I can see as more cattle hit the market and it's going to have an effect on the cattle herd in the future and uh, maybe a dwindling uh, supply of, of, you know, feeder cattle as we go forward.
0: Ryder, can you pick up on that? Because I think that you know this is an interesting angle too. And and uh, again, I don't pretend to know too much about it. But but I, what Lynn's alluding to is the obvious uh, reality that for a lot of producer, uh, a lot of producers, it becomes quite frankly uh, too difficult or too expensive to feed the herd to fatten the herd, right? So you got to kind of dump them off uh, unless you want to wind up calling, right? And so ranchers are making some pretty difficult decisions right now. Can you provide some insight into how people might decide what the right move is for their operation?
4: Well, and that's, that's the worry too, is, um, you know, the infrastructure that we depend on to take our cattle to beef is, you know, a couple of big processing plants, one at Brooks and one at High River. And, you know, as we decide as we, you know, try to match the amount of cows that we keep to the feed that we can find for them and provide for them, if that shrinks too much, those plants start having trouble finding supply. And and that's the long-term um, negative that we're trying to avoid is is we need to be able to supply those plants and keep them. Um, otherwise, once they're gone, that that's not something you can just, you know, turn down and turn back up again you know similar to some of the mines around Saskatoon they, they turned those off and boy the restart is is not just a, a flick of a switch so that's the that's one of the real threats we talk about is if we if we let this and don't do all that we can to to maintain what we can of the herd through through the winter to next year and hopefully you know next year country is better um, that's that's one of the major threats we do but there's no question people are making Hard decisions, you know, you you generally breed a good chunk of your your herd. You're gonna you're gonna sell their offspring into into the the meat strain. But there's also people that grow a lot of cattle that they sell to other cattle producers for breeding stock. And the you know the the years that you put into building up that genetic line um, are are many and and to see those going for um, just kind of taking what you can get for for Selling them into the the meat side of thing because you have to right size your herd to the feed supply or the water supply is is heartbreaking. So it's you know it there's a tough toll on on producers out there right now. Around you know they're they're caregivers to a lot of animals and and they're providers for their family and 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 darn it they're good at what they do but you can't make it fall out of the sky. So it's. There's some powerlessness there.
0: I think that, that genetic angle is a really interesting one, and uh, I, I'm not I'm not trying to make light of this. Uh, you know, we can see Ryder over your shoulder for people that are watching this on YouTube. We can see the Habs logo. Um, you know, and there there are some real similarities, aren't there? Uh, that I see between farmers and hockey fans. You know, if, if your team's not the one that that hoists that chalice, that silver cup at the end of the year, you know, you kind of go, you kind of have to keep your optimism. And, you know, this is your calling. And you're like, well, there's always next year. And, and farmers exhibit this resilience and they, they dig and find this optimism. I, mean, I, I follow. I try to follow as many producers as I can on social media. Guy the other day had hail roll through and just absolutely demolish a crop. And he's like, well, what are you going to do? I'm like, what are you going to do? I mean, that that would be like, I feel like if a third of our business just blew apart. I don't know. I don't know how you find a way to manage it and, and how you dig deep i mean lynn maybe you can talk about this i mean we're seeing posts you know the farm stress line for example i'd love to ask both of you about this but you know opportunities people are talking more about mental health and farming people are talking more about resources for farmers i want to talk about government programs and insurance and all that in just a moment but this farm stress line one 800 667 Four or two. Actually, Ryder, maybe I'll get you to comment on this first because it's from the Saskatchewan Cattlemen's Association. Why is it so important to have this out there, this resource? I mean, I, I feel like it's a rhetorical question, but let's talk about it.
4: Well, it, part of it is is normalizing something that we've probably, I think, in the last maybe what is it, five years or, or maybe it's longer, maybe it's shorter. We've we've done a good job as as an industry, but probably as society too of of recognizing that, uh, you know, just taking that feeling and shoving it back down is, is not, (laughs) not healthy. (laughs) And, you know, and recognizing that constricted feeling you get in your chest where it doesn't feel like you can breathe and maybe you can't move that that's anxiety and, and dealing with it can be done through a few different things. And part of it is talking about it. And, and so, you know, all the sharing you see of, of resources and numbers, part of it is, and, and conversations that you have on shows like this, you know, you, you touch on a lot of interesting topics that probably, you know, were, were no-go zones 10 years ago yeah. To to make it normal to talk about these challenges. And hopefully, you know, be able to draw on friends, family, professionals and get through this um, with your your health, both you know mentally and physically intact because um you know, we, we don't want to lose farmers and ranchers, whether it's um, leaving the industry because they can't handle it or or really losing them. and that's that's what we're trying to help avoid and and I think I think there's been a lot of progress not only in farming and ranching but but in farming and ranching around, hey, it's okay to to talk about.
0: You're bang on, Ryder. You know, you know I've, uh, I'm, I'm uh, l- lucky enough to have a bit of an insight into uh, emergency response. A few close pals of mine are firefighters, proud firefighters, and they talk to me how the culture in the hall has really changed in about that five year window that you talk about is we're not looking back 15 years. It's, it's been relatively recent that conversations around mental health and stigma have happened. And now they'll talk about tough calls. They'll sit around the table in the kitchen or the mess hall or whatever they call it in the fire hall. And they'll, and they'll talk about tough calls when they didn't used to do it. Lynn, have you seen that trend yourself firsthand from farmers and producers? You notice an evolution there?
3: Yeah, no, it's been a, an evolution uh, probably started, like you said, about five years ago. It's done it. Uh, I guess my generation, I'm a little bit older than you guys. Uh, basically, we didn't talk about it. Uh, that's one of those things that you just sort of internalized and uh, people handled it differently in our area. And, uh, you know, over the years, you think back and, you know, we, we did have some people, you know, that uh, committed suicide and uh, there was a lot of drinking problems. There was also quite a few, you know, in some areas, uh, family violence. It took that form. So I guess over the past, the the last five years as we've gone forward is has been a, a a bit of a change especially for the younger producers they've got more resources that they're uh, can can access at this point in time and hopefully so and that's what we need uh we don't need to go back to where my father was and and, and i guess a lot of my peers when we went through and we didn't talk about this uh at all it was just something you just sort of Put down and you just carried on.
0: (laughs) Well, you know what I love? I love that what was perceived, you know, 10 or 30 or 100 years ago as weakness uh, which would be talking about your feelings, is now seen as a sign of strength, which I think is is an amazing evolution. I want to talk <clears throat> about the sons and daughters. I want to talk about succession planning and trends a little later on in this conversation, but, but why don't we talk right now about what would represent meaningful response or meaningful support here? So, Lynn, maybe we'll start with you. I mean, does this automatically fall on provincial and federal governments? Um, I mean, we can have conversations about third-party stuff, insurance, and things like that, but I mean, when we're talking about how to address a drought type emergency, like many farmers are experiencing this year, where do you start in addressing it?
3: I guess one of the first things uh, people are looking at uh, in our area, you know, the dry land people that do have uh, cattle, they're looking at securing a feed supply. And so they're going around looking uh, Alberta hail and crop or Alberta crop insurance, basically is uh, letting people now start uh reclaiming some of their uh, crop uh, cropland that's uh, been, you know, in drought conditions and that there's a little bit left there and they can salvage some for feed. So they're going out there and doing that. Uh, and a lot of people, well, a couple of people that I talked to uh, yesterday talked and they're a little bit farther North, a little better conditions than us. And they said they were silaging uh, whatever they could, and they were getting about a third of their production off of their land. Um, but there will be areas, well, hard dry land just outside our window here um the peas are what about three four inches high with about three pods on so there's not going to be much salvage value in that stuff uh so everybody's looking at different things uh hey let me let me interrupt
0: for a second just so to to give us some context you say they're about three or four inches high right now If, if it was a if it was a boom year what would they look like
3: uh they'd be about two two and a half feet tall wow Uh, you know, standing up there, they'd be loaded with pods. You'd be looking at, uh, on a good year here on uh, dry land, you can can get 50, 60 bushel an acre uh, yields if you get the rain at the right time. Um, So it's really uh, a change from where you got to scrape the ground and maybe eat quite a few rocks to try to get something to, uh, you know, having a decent crop.
0: Yeah, so to state the obvious, that's tough on equipment too. But but I, I stepped in front of you before you made your point about the federal government.
3: Yeah, I guess the federal government has recognized there's been a drought and uh, uh, ag recovery now, uh, the federal government has uh, agreed that they're going to do it. So they're working with the provinces on that and how that's going to work out. We don't know exactly the details on that yet, but uh, they had also offered uh, that you can have a tax deferral system. So if you've got to sell your herd, you can buy back. But really, that's just sort of an interim measure. That isn't really, I don't think what our industry really needs, because that does not save the herd that is still uh, you sell off your herd. So then you're going to be able to save your taxes that you wouldn't have to declare that income for this year and pay the taxes, but then you can use that money next year to buy it back in. But if all them cattle have gone off or been sold off, where do you get the cattle and how do you replace them at the same value or you know, not too much of an increased value. So it's, it's, it's a compounding problem as it goes forward. While we appreciate the federal government offering that thing, I think we need something that looks at saving that, that mother herd and how we're going to do it. And we're talking about that within our different farm organizations. In fact, uh, we we're sort of talking about some type of program, something like the Hay West that we used to, we did about 10, 15 years ago, uh, as maybe a, a help in some provinces.
0: What was it? Can you can you give us kind of the coles notes of what was effective about that program? Well, it was
3: it was a program that we set up uh, among all the general farm organizations and a lot of other uh, organizations. That the cattlemen were part of that too, uh, and then the railways uh, at that at that point in time were were helpful. Basically, it was bringing hay from uh, eastern eastern uh, Canada, basically. Uh, into our area and uh, Saskatchewan and Manitoba. It wasn't, it couldn't satisfy everybody's needs, but it helped. Okay. And that's one of the things that we do and we're talking about doing something like this, but maybe changing it. And we know shipping, you know, physical volumes of hay uh, to really is a real expensive. So we're talking about different ways and maybe there's cubing plants or pelleting plants in the East that we can do and we can start shipping, um, you know, grain or um, or um, you know alfalfa or grass mixtures to Western Canada and to the producers. And we've also talked about maybe our, our provinces need to be prioritized. Manitoba is, is worse than Alberta. Uh, they've, they've, they're being hit a lot harder and a lot drier in a lot of conditions. a lot of parts of Saskatchewan are way worse than Alberta too. So as we go forward, maybe we need to prioritize Alberta, and this is my own opinion, Probably we can survive with our own resources and people being innovative. But when you get in some areas, there is no uh, ability to be innovative.
0: Yeah, I, I could tell, Ryder, something resonated with you there, just based on your body language. When Lynn was talking about protecting uh, what would you call it, Lynn, the mother herd. Is that what you called it? Uh, it yeah. yeah. So what would what would that look like? I mean, if you were to put pen to paper and actually draft government policy, how would you write it up?
3: <laughs> now you're really <laughs> getting into details. and uh, <clears throat> I think we need to talk about if we're going to, some of the priorities we need, and one, maybe the one of the priorities we need is actually feed and water for these animals coming in, and that's what's going to be able to do it. But we've got to do it in a cost-effective measure and what people can afford to do. If you're going to have to pay, you know, 15, 20 cents a pound for your, your feed, it's not going to happen. you got to get down probably into that, six seven cents a pound of feed before uh, it makes it uh you
4: know feasible for people to survive this this drought
0: riders does that sound about right to you well
4: i i sure hope people are finding six or seven cents a pound you know the the thing is 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 it's so widespread and the experience is so variable that it's it's hard to say, well, it's the, this do that. And, and it'll, it'll work for everybody, whether it's water feed or, or a combination of them. So what we've been telling our, our government is agri-recovery should put some dollars per head of, of those mother cows in people's hands as quick as they can to help get through the now. And let's uh, analyze a little bit down the road, what, what the next steps are, but, you know the the other thing that complicates this is all these rumors of a federal election and when an election's being done there isn't a lot that gets done by by a government so yeah. if that comes into play that's that's further of a problem so that that amps up the if we're going to do anything for producers and we really think that a simple straight payment quickly can help them be the most creative they can be versus, um, you know, well, let's let's put up 14 check marks and bureaucratic hoops that you have to, to get through before before you get anything, and and maybe you'll see some some help next year. No, that that's not going to work. So yeah, um, that's that's really what we're looking for is something that can help producers locally be as creative as they can and and work on on keeping as much of our herd so that we have supply for for the, for downstream you know whether it's packing plants or grocery stores um, there's going to be an impact here
0: yeah uh right i mean it's it's kind of funny you know you sit there and you say not much gets done when when campaigns are underway and you're totally right however the cynic in me also points out that Typically, governing parties just before the writ drops, just before they call the election, sometimes splash cash all over the place. So maybe you just need to find that sweet spot on the calendar. Who knows? We're we're expecting an election call, I think, in the next, I don't know, 10, 12 days, probably Um, so. People are going to say, you know, of, of, of the thousands of people, quite frankly, that are going to listen to this podcast today or they're going to watch this on YouTube, many of them we know we have some interesting polling actually on our audience. About one in five audience members uh, lives in a rural setting. And so about 20 percent of this audience is going to probably have some some more keen or or, or uh, intuitive insight into what this means. And then about four out of five of us, about 80 percent of the audience will be sitting here going, OK, so like, what does this mean for me? right? That's what people are going to be wondering about, whether it means at the grocery store or somewhere else, what does it mean for me? Lynn, uh, what would you tell
3: them? Yeah, well, you're talking about a little bit of crystal ball gazing there. Yeah, uh, it's, I mean, if the cattle herd shrinks, uh, that's going to mean there's going to be less supply for the packing plants as we go forward. Uh, overall, North America is a bit of an integrated market, so the U.S. is taking uh, you know, cattle down there and we're feeding cattle down there, you know, maybe that will shift up into this area, but uh, I mean, it, it's hard to crystal ball this and, and actually come up with some, you know, firm projections. I think we've got our, well, if this happens, this is going to happen. And, you know, those type of scenarios. So what I can see though in the future is, there's probably going to be a lot of pressure on the meat supply system. And when it comes down to it, We're also talking not only the beef herd, but we're also talking about pork and that too, because uh, pork industry is going to be affected by this, uh, this drought too, because of the rising cost of feed to them, especially when on the feed grains. So they're always, they're always having trouble, the pork industry in the past. And they've had a very hard time maintaining their industry. Now when feed barley in our area is over $7 a bushel. Uh, that puts a huge strain on some of those people that are looking at it. So, those type of things are doing now. This drought maybe has a plus side in some areas. If they can harvest a crop, it probably won't make the top grade and it'll go as seed grain. And maybe that will be uh, one of those innovative solutions that people will be looking at and feeding, you know, uh, different types of grain to their cattle. And you can feed grain and straw, if and some supplements, and you can get by on that. So there is some op you know opportunities uh for people to be creative in that area
0: right or what would you what would you tell folks living in the more urban side i i I realize first of all that i'm totally generalizing stereotyping and painting with really broad brushes i acknowledge that but what would you tell the urban dwellers about what this may mean or will mean for them
4: well there's there's a couple things and 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 I think your comment section—I was just skimming through it—you know—was was talking to some of that as well. It is, it isn't just what happens in the meat case. It is gonna, it, it is gonna play out in your other crops as well because we're not the only shoppers for Canadian crops and, and Canadian produce and and what we've seen over the last couple of years is um, you know some effects of what happens in China and their short production and start buying everything they can and get a hold of and we've seen those effects in in the prices that we pay in Canada. So that's been kind of a demand impact from from the world wanting what Canada grows and and what we're going to see is probably a supply impact from from this year you know there's over 40% of the arable you know the the land that grows stuff in canada is in saskatchewan and then a good 40% chunk of the rest is in alberta and manitoba yeah mm-hmm. wow so um, the, the the thing about this year is usually when we have a drought we have a drought every summer somewhere somebody's lost the lost the lottery on who gets the rain this year um, and you end up shopping you know, a couple of counties over, or and and you, you know, you kind of we take turns and we switch it back and forth. Well, for for this year, it's boy, it's a lot of ours turns, and yeah, there you go. It's um,
0: for those that are listening to the podcast, we're showing it hasn't this, gotten
4: any better since,
0: so. yeah. We're showing the Canadian drought monitor right now, which is uh, it's uh, it, it basically looks like a wildfire map, is what it looks like, and and if you can imagine half of the country. Ablaze right now. That's basically what it looks like. It's Southern Manitoba uh appears to be hit the hardest with of course saskatchewan and even uh you know uh, the interior of british columbia as well not to mention parts of quebec ontario and even into yukon northwest territories etc we've shared that map if you're listening on the podcast and you follow us on twitter at real talk rj uh producer sarah hoyles has shared that map Ryder, and i want to get both you on uh, talking about this uh in closing we're so grateful for your time and perspective here This would be another I mean as people are you know drinking their coffees and talking about this uh, I would imagine that some of the conversations will steer toward talk about succession and families And I know that this has been a real challenge Uh, Of course there are going to be the farm families where there's no doubt you know at at four years old You know the daughters are on the combine or the sons learn to drive the tractor already And they know what they want to do when they grow up because they're already doing it And there's never going to be any question there but but more and more we're seeing that next generation move on, or Ryder. How much of an issue is this, is uh, from your vantage point?
4: Well, it's it's a real concern, and and that renewal of the industry has been a concern um, for, I'd say, going back to BSE when you know there was there was a joke at that time. You know, what do you? what's child abuse it's giving the farm to your kids and and we've done a lot of work to to change that point of view to develop mentorship programs to uh, develop whatever youth facing programs we can to to make sure that we have people of the next generation and the next generation that want to and that have the skills and and have the the awareness of what's there beyond their farm to To take it to what it needs to be in a modern day, but when 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 it doesn't fall from the sky, that really challenges it. And and you know, the impacts of this isn't just you know. Sorry to go back to that last question, but this part feed overlaps with that. You can tell in Regina, Saskatoon, you know, Lethbridge, maybe less so in Calgary and Edmonton, but to a degree, um, the when it's going good in the ag economy, those people are in town spending money and and there's a lot more agriculture towns than, than we even know about it. And some of our bigger cities, you'll see the impacts of that. And and this is that kind of thing where all of a sudden, you know, car dealerships and everything else, it all trickles down from there. And so, so it, it, it'll hit you in the city and, and well, where did that business go? Yeah. Huh. mostly served people from out of town and they've been having a challenging time. So the impacts will be seen, you know, not just in the grocery store, but all over town
0: all over town absolutely and even in i mean i know you're, you're you're basically making this point already but and not just even the car dealerships like everywhere right the family that might come into town for the weekend and grab a hotel room and visit a couple restaurants or maybe they were going to pick up a ski boat or maybe they, like whatever right i mean there's a there's a million different ways that that spending could be interrupted and i think it's such a huge reminder as well of that. it's not And I'm guilty of this unintentionally, but oftentimes I'm like rural, urban, rural, urban. And it's not it's not like that. Right. It's I mean, there's this synergy. It's a beautiful and important synergy. Um, I'm just grateful to have conversations like this to to bring Canadians together in better understanding it. Lynn, on that succession front, I mean, where's your head at? I mean, I I would imagine that Ryder made a few points that resonated with you. What would you like to add to the conversation?
3: No, Ryder, Ryder's you know, right about, about uh, the situation in agriculture. And it really doesn't change between uh, cattle producers and, and crop producers. I mean, we all facing the same thing. Our industry has been consolidating for quite a few time or quite a few years. And I guess when I took over my, uh, our farm here from my father uh, and grandfather, (coughs) you know, it was sort of the expected thing, but my son and daughters and that they've decided they don't want to farm. And so we've, when you look around in a lot of our areas, we lost our generation. It's now our grandchildren type of thing that are looking at maybe taking over the farm from people. But it's it's really a, a hard thing to do and a lot of farms have been lost because they didn't have anybody to turn it down. and uh, there's, in the past, there was a lot of you know pressure to consolidate because you needed more acres to survive. And we've seen that all the way across Western Canada you know, you had to have bigger and bigger operations. Uh, And some people maybe got a little too big. (laughs) We've always seen some of those people. But uh, there's always pressure on the consolidation and and putting our industry, uh, you know, to a smaller footing. And I guess the economics of it really are driving it. Uh, Our my kids, they couldn't see uh, a viable alternative that they really wanted to have the lifestyle we had. They wanted something different and they wanted, you know, different advantages, what they would see. So, I mean, once they had an education and we got them educated in what they wanted to do, they made the decision not to stay on the farm. So I guess that's one of the things we're dealing with personally. Lynn, is that, uh, was that uh,
0: just? it's a personal question. Was that difficult for you? <clears throat> I mean, this is a, this has been a family business over the, you know, that's seen generations, take over was that tough for you and your kids said no thanks uh
3: it was at the beginning you know you sort of hope you get that you know that interest in there but you know the economic reality of it says uh you know they couldn't do it at that point in time they couldn't take over because land prices uh in our area plus you know the the price of commodities that they could sell for would really make them struggle a lot and we we had a lot of Kids in our area, or a lot of young people in our area, that really went broke in the '80s. Uh, they went through that, and they couldn't survive.
0: Yeah, I I was talking to my cousin who's got a big dairy operation just right, right on the Yellowhead Highway, just uh, you know, uh, the, the Stony Plain exit. Uh, you know, heading yep. west to Jasper out of Edmonton and. He was giving me a sense of, you know, generally, he's a private guy and obviously a modest guy, but I, I was making him feel guilty because my grandpa grew up on that farm. So I said, I'm entitled to understand some of the numbers around this operation. You know, we're having a good time talking about it. When he started talking to me about the value of quota and he started talking to me about land value, I looked at him and I, I just said, Graham, why on earth wouldn't you just sell the farm? And he looked right back at me and he said, Ryan, he said, Ryan, that's why you're not a farmer. And I said, that's a very fair point. And so uh, I'm grateful for opportunities to have these conversations and better understand the dynamics at play. Uh, thanks for helping us, uh, both of you, understand the implications of these drought conditions. And of course, a couple of storylines that this show will continue to keep an eye on. Uh, we've been hearing from Ryder Lee, uh, the CEO of the Saskatchewan Cattlemen's Association, and Lynn Jacobson, uh, who farms out of Ancient Alberta. Uh, president of the alberta federation of agriculture thanks for feeding the nation both of you and thanks for your time this morning we really appreciate it
4: okay thank you thanks for having us yeah
0: appreciate you, it you bet and hey next year better luck on the better luck uh, on that cup run uh, hey rider let me ask you something real quick real quick before we go real quick were you surprised were you a little surprised that the kraken didn't take carry price were you a little surprised at that well, I
4: was all over the board on that, but in the end, I think they they were going for for flexibility. He'd he'd make a great flagship, like a, a you know a launching face, but I guess you know so will Giordano and some of their other picks. And I'm I'm glad I'm glad we don't have to deal with losing them.
0: Yeah, there you go. I'm I'm just actually uh, in real time uh, right this moment. Uh, I'm just getting an update right now. So this will be old news for people that listen to this later in the show. Apparently Oilers defenseman oils, you can confirm it thumbs up if it's true. Uh, apparently Oilers defenseman, Ethan bear has just been traded. Uh, Ethan bear has been traded. I know I just had the same reaction as you Ryder. Uh, yeah. So he's, he's on his way to to Carolina apparently. Wow. Things happen fast. Uh, thanks to you too. It's been great to talk today.
3: Okay. Yeah. So Ryan is, uh, Sports more like uh, farming. It's next year country. <laughs> yeah,
0: I don't know what's going on right now. I mean, he's a I was just talking to Ethan Bear a couple of weeks ago, as a matter of fact. And, whew, all right. Hockey is life. Farming is life. Talk is life, isn't it? Thanks to you two for this. Some real talk on agriculture uh, across the country. You just I saw Sarah you're first of all there's a lot to unpack uh, Mm. in that conversation about agriculture and that's the serious stuff But uh, I just see you your your eyes just widen up like (laughs) dinner plates I can't hide my emotions and, And then I see you scribbling with a with a sharpie on a piece of scrap paper and you just hold it up to me Ethan bear trade. I'm like what so that's an interesting development the uh Wow, I recognize that not everyone that listens to this show is an Oilers fan or is a hockey fan, for that matter. But this is a bright young star. Uh, a, a to call him a fan favorite would be an understatement. Yeah, huge. Yeah, Ethan Bear is uh, has been a huge asset to that team, and which would lead you to believe that you know there's there there, there the Oilers blue line is is evolving here, right? Adam Larson swiped by the Kraken, and Oscar Kleffbaum's future unknown. Uh, Duncan Keith brought in to provide some stability Conn Smythe winner Olympic gold medal winner Stanley Cup winner but aging a a gray a a silver-backed gray gray bearded veteran uh, will be amazing in the room Uh, I don't I I was going to talk about Tyson Berry but who knows maybe he's signed since we started talking so who knows what's going on here wild stuff Uh, Speaking of trucks, uh, speaking of farming, I know the team at the St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge are ready to talk trade-in with you. I mean, this is a serious thing right now with regards to the truck market. There's been a real shortage in inventory. We were talking about this a while ago. The Suez Canal thing Messed with things Those Texas storms Messed with things COVID's been Messing with things And the microchips Haven't been available And it's meant that Inventory is really low It also means a lot of people Are trading in Gently pre-owned trucks And in a lot of circumstances Getting way better deals Than they would otherwise The team at Sherwood And St. Albert Dodge Always willing to talk trades They've got a great Certified pre-owned market You can find them online Under the sponsors tab At ryanjesperson.com And then, of course, we talk about food. We talk about ag and the relationship with producers and consumers. Nobody's been living that out better. Nobody knows more about that than the team at Friesen Brothers. For more than 65 years, they have been prioritizing Canadian producers. And they've been doing so proudly when it comes to proteins. Of course, Alberta beef, chicken, pork, turkey. Also, some of the vegetarian and vegan options. Alberta Pulse producers. I mean, amazing things underway. They've even gotten an amazing exhibit that I the other day at their new South Edmonton store, Alberta Honey. And they're just featuring some of the producers there. They're even producing their own honey on the roof of the grocery store. What? Go see it for yourself. Friesen Brothers, 16 locations across the province. Alberta grown and Alberta owned. Well, we're going to roll hot from talk on agriculture into talk about forests right now. And uh, this is, uh, you know, this show, one of the things that we're really proud of is that we keep conversations going. So whether it's talk about logging or forestry, whether it's conversations about coal or curriculum, we understand that one conversation does not represent every perspective a week ago today i talked to becky best Burtwistle whistle from the canadian parks and wilderness society that's Sea pause and she joined us to provide some insight from their perspective after alberta's government uh, handed over a big contract on forest management in southwest alberta this was the deal between the government of alberta and crow's nest forest products which is a subsidiary of spray lake sawmills if you missed the interview you can find it on our podcast archive of course you can find it on youtube as well well the team at the alberta forest products association reached out and said you guys open to a counterpoint we said obviously and of course and that's the type of robust discussion we want to have all the time and we're grateful that brock mulligan has agreed to join us on the show brock good morning and welcome to real talk
1: good morning ryan
0: thanks for having me on yeah you bet now we're going we're gonna play some clips from my interview with becky we're gonna give you a chance to respond but just candidly what was it that prompted you and your team to reach out in the first place
1: well, first of all, I'm really looking forward to this interview format. It sounds like a lot of fun. Um, in terms of what prompted us to reach out, this is a really complex discussion. There are multiple sides to it, and and I mean, hey, we thought that it it was time to come on and give our side too. It's it's in the news. Um, we think that there's a really good story to tell on forestry, and we we just wanted to come on and chat a little bit about it.
0: Well, we're grateful uh, that you're here. I I want to recognize uh, people can check out your website at loveabforests.com. You've got a forest tour that is narrated by easily one of the most famous Edmontonians of all time, uh, doing a ton of amazing work uh, down in the United States right now. Everybody knows the name Nathan Fillion. You go out and get Nathan Filion to narrate your forest tour. You're pulling out all the stops. <laughs> Even the URL, even the web address, love Alberta Forest. You're trying to send a message to people that I think probably view your industry. Let's have some real talk here. They probably are imagining big trucks coming into forests and clear-cutting and leveling entire swaths. And obviously, you want to send a different message. And you're probably going to tell us that the industry is about a whole lot more than that.
1: That's right. I mean, our industry is an industry that, that's that been around here in Alberta for 100 years. It's, it's a lot of small family companies. And it's a lot of really passionate people who love what they do. I mean, being a forester, I've been out in the bush with foresters. It's, it's not like it's always glamorous work. I mean, there's mosquitoes, there's cold mornings, uh, there's wading through muck. Uh, but the folks who do it, they, they're like, they're just, they love it. Uh, they're so passionate. They love doing what they do every single day. Um, and, and the reason they do it is because they want to keep areas that are forests now, forests forever. And And these forests, as you'll see, um, in our Love Alberta Forest tour, if you have a chance to check it out, it's pretty fun. And, and Nathan Fillion's got an awesome voice. Um, they go through stages. You know, they 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 get older. They they burn or they're harvested. They get replanted. And there's there's real beauty and there's ecological value at every single stage of the forest life. And so that's something that we would like people to go on and check it out. Especially if you're cooped up in the house, it's pretty cool. Um, and go see what we're all about.
0: Brock has the has the messaging. Become more important has has public cynicism or scrutiny increased? Would you say in recent years?
1: I think that every industry that operates on the land base is is looked at very closely. Um We operate here on public lands in Alberta um about ninety six percent of our forests are publicly owned, and that's something that's really unique and and cool. um At the same time, it means that folks are watching and they want to know what you're doing and and so we're open to that conversation like come and come and check us out. Um, it's pretty interesting i think
0: okay well we uh uh, by we what i mean is sarah hoyles who does all the real heavy lifting around here uh gave your team brock an opportunity to to essentially audit our conversation with becky from cpaws and your organization got back to us with five key points that you wanted to address so Without any further ado, I want to get right into them. Uh, so this was Becky Bespert-Whistle. This is the first point you wanted to touch on. This is from Real Talk one week ago.
5: So this is the eastern slopes of the Rockies. It's what we've been talking about a lot when it comes to coal. Um, it's a really sensitive area. It's our headwaters. It is also home to, you know, many native threatened species, uh, specifically trout. And it's there's also... Um, beautiful grasslands in this area and lots of old growth and lots of people out there recreating lots of ranchers it's a really busy landscape an important landscape already and by signing this 20-year fma the government has really said to spray like sawmills which is the parent company of crow's nest forest products that they're the priority decision maker on the land
0: brock what would be your counterpoint there
1: all right. Well, I'm going to start by dis- by agreeing with Becky, which is probably not something I'm going to do on every point, about, about the beauty of this area and the importance of managing the forest there responsibly. Like this is, I don't know if you've been had a chance to get out and do some hiking down there, but it, it is an amazing and beautiful place. Um, there's a few things she said that I don't know that are completely accurate, so I wanted to, I wanted to, to talk a little bit about those. One is that uh, the, there was an inference that the government of Alberta is somehow not going to have decision making authority now that authority, now that this is in a forest management agreement. Uh, completely false. Uh, These are publicly owned lands, they are scrutinized to the nth degree. Um, Really, what's changing here is that um, we're we're integrating two forest management plans into one. And and so I pulled one of these plans this morning, 1720 pages, Ryan, worth of statistical data, science, uh, working with the community and taking their opinions into account. And so effectively what this does is is consolidate two of those uh, 1,740-page plans into one. What it doesn't change is who owns the land and makes the final decision. That's government. It always is going to be. And that's the right thing to do. That's why we have publicly managed forests and why it's such a unique legacy. Another thing I wanted to touch on was there was a conversation about old growth, and this is really in the news right now. We're seeing it in BC where they've got these, you know, six, 700-year-old forests with these giant cedars that you could wrap your arms around and and effectively they live a really long time. Um, Here in Alberta, our forests are really different. They are something that fire sweeps through pretty frequently. The area that we're talking about here has been studied extensively and the studies say that typically it burns every 80 to 100 years. Um, Fire is a natural part of the landscape and it's not something you want to get rid of entirely, but when you've got communities, when you've got people on the land base, it's something that you want to manage. And, And so when we talk about Leaving the place entirely alone versus managed forestry, where you have some harvesting. What we're really talking about is what what's the end of, the, of that tree's life going to look like? Is it going to burn, or is it going to be something that you're going to harvest at some point um, and then replant? And so our industry harvests about half a percent of the land base every year, and then we we, we replant everything that we that we harvest. And that's about 100 million seedlings in Melbourne every
0: year. Can I ask you about that, Brock? Uh, by the way, on a side note, you talk about old growth. And of course, everybody in Canada, I think, to a certain degree, is paying attention to the Ferry Creek blockade. Want to let our audience know that tomorrow on Thursday's show, we're going to be talking to folks on the front lines there, I believe, a spokesperson from the blockade as well as a journalist. Is that right? Or we have wheels in motion to potentially have two of those different conversations. Just a point of interest for the audience. Uh, Brock, I've seen a lot of people talk, and I'm going to be honest here. I'm coming from a point of relative ignorance, OK? But, but I've seen a lot of people say that this... The, the reforestation methodology, the plan, doesn't get the forest back to where it was. You know, you, if, if you go through and plant a bunch of pines or you go through and plant a bunch of fir, the original ecology would have been much more diverse. Can you comment on that?
1: Sure. So every single block that we harvest gets a really thorough assessment from a forester. And one of the things they take into account is what was growing thereafter. after. Um, after the harvest is done, you've got two years to, to undertake regeneration activity. So if, if you had pine growing there before or spruce, you're going to need to replant it. If you had aspen, um, you, it, it regenerates on its own, although there's usually some some types of groundwork that need to be done to, to make sure that happens. Uh, but the goal is bring it back to exactly what was there before. Um, you have to stay with it, monitor it for 14 years and government comes and checks on your work to make sure that it happens. So we're very much held accountable to making sure that um, we're continuing to replicate uh, a forest with a lot of biodiversity.
0: Okay, here's a, another clip from my conversation a week ago with CPAW's spokesperson, Becky Bespert whistle
5: The way that forestry has been operating on the eastern slopes in the Rockies here has been really at a breakneck speed, and it's unlikely that they're going to have a lot of timber in the next 30 years past that 20-year contract. So it's definitely a motivation for companies to kind of get it all as quickly as they can right now.
0: Brock?
1: I think the insinuation there is that we're speeding up the rate at which we do forestry. And we're not, we harvest about half a percent a year. That's something that's been consistent for years and years. Half a and percent years. of what? Uh, half a percent of the forest okay. of Alberta. So we're not, we're not harvesting and they take about, you know, a hundred years to, to regrow to where they were. So, so that's a, that's a perfectly sustainable clip. Um, I think the insinuation there is that we're speeding up We're we're not, um, we're continuing on, on at a consistent pace. And, and the other thing is that we're making sure that everything that gets harvested is, is regenerated. And I guess the final point that I'd add is that as we're starting to see, we, we actually have a lot of forests in Alberta that because we've been you know putting out forest fires, doing protection and that kind of stuff are, are getting quite old. And I mean, the old growth forests in BC are a lot different because it's a it's a damper area. But here in Alberta, our, our, our older stuff tends to burn. And so, Um, It's very important that we keep a close eye on that. And in some cases, we need to do things like harvest stuff that's that's getting to that age uh, in order to to mitigate the risk.
0: Brock, this next point that Becky makes centers around accountability and I think oversight to a certain degree. And I know that that's where a lot of public concern is on this as well. uh, Members of the public are the impression that there will be no accountability when it comes to a private company or at least an operator there and and what's happening in front of them. The public's concerned that there's not going to be appropriate oversight. Uh, Here's what Becky had to say along those lines a week ago on the show.
5: We've seen this company in the past destroy critical habitat for native cutthroat trout threatened, and they have faced zero consequence from either the provincial government or the Department of Fisheries and Oceans.
0: You wanted to comment on that.
1: I did. I mean, she's citing a clean track record as evidence of wrongdoing, which is completely uh, false. Our industry operates under very, very stringent guidelines. Um, we have uh, government of Alberta operating ground rules, and the thing is like this thick. There are inspectors out frequently to make sure that we're doing the right thing, and and they're finding that on Trout um, that we are, and that's why the compliance record is is, frankly, spotless. The other thing that I'd point out on Trout is that, We've, we've had that landscape in southwestern Alberta studied extensively. Uh, something called the Lost Creek uh, study that was done about 15 to 20 years ago. It was in an area where a big fire had swept through. Um, and what it found was that that fire was really, really deleterious to the water quality, very harmful. And that areas, you know, a little bit further over where there had been some harvesting taking place strategically had far better water quality because they didn't have you know, the ash and sediment and mercury and all that kind of stuff that winds up in the water when you have a big fire go through. And so I think that it's she's suggesting that we're harming trout habitat. I think that actually what we're doing is the right thing for species like trout.
0: It's not just c that's that's been speaking out, you know, concerned, I think, about this agreement. Um, the FMA, the Forest Management Agreement with Crowsnest Forest Products and the government of Alberta. And I know that that other groups have come forward and talked about oversight and they've talked about accountability. Can you explain to the audience, Brock, how it does exist? What would be the argument? I mean, if you were to run into somebody on the street that found out where you worked and what you did and said, Hey, I I need to know how these companies are held accountable because I keep reading in the news about how basically they've got a green light to operate right now. What would your position be?
1: Um, I would say that the best thing that they could do is sit down and work through a forest management planning process with a company. As I, as I said earlier, these things are like 1,700 pages thick. They take years and years to develop. Um, and there is extensive collaboration with community. You'll go out and see open houses. Companies are open uh, to conversations, tours, all these kinds of things. And, and then there's dealing with, with government of Alberta, who are the regulator and are the final decision maker. Uh, there's whole divisions of companies that are devoted to this. Uh, we've got an association here in Edmonton. This takes up probably the vast majority of our time. Um, And it's because the regulation process is so stringent and so involved. It's I mean, in some ways, it's all consuming, um, but it's also very important. I think that because um, it it makes sure that everybody's accountable and sustainable.
0: I want to remind our audience that these are points that that your team put in front of us that you wanted to address. And so I want to make sure I get to all five of them. Brock, here's another comment. This is talking about pressure. On the landscape, uh, this was Becky bespert Russell from CPAWS.
5: It really is putting a lot of pressure on the landscape. And there's like very few remaining wild areas where, you know, wildlife can find refuge, areas that we need um, for climate resiliency.
0: Brock.
1: Thanks, Ryan. So a couple of points there. First of all, 70 percent of the eastern slopes in Alberta are in some type of park or protected area, um, especially the national parks, provincial parks. Uh, these types of areas. He's I don't know if that, that I don't that know if that saying.
0: means anything to anybody anymore, though, Brock. I mean, <laughs> people right now have lawn signs out because there's you know there there's talk about open pit mining in the parks. I don't know if protected park means anything to the average person anymore.
1: Well, uh, I mean, fair enough. It means in our industry that we don't go in and harvest. And, and so what she's insinuating is that there are basically the whole landscape is open open for forestry, um, and and that's uh, not true. But like I said, seventy percent of of the landscapes in, in these parks. Uh, the other thing to point out though, is that, that when you put parks on the landscape, there are some, there are some implications that you need to consider. And I mean, if you look at Jasper national park right now, they have a massive pine beetle infestation uh, and there's really not a lot that's being done about it. It's It's been allowed to sweep through there and kill the vast majority of the pine. You look at areas a little bit east of it where companies operate. What companies have done is gone and, and look at areas where the pine could come. You've got these older, these older trees that are far more susceptible to beetle infestation. And what we've done has been really strategic in harvesting small areas of those before the pine beetle gets there. And it, it's been very effective in maintaining a healthy forest and also uh, preventing spread of the pine beetle further east uh, into Saskatchewan. It hasn't gotten there yet.
0: Here's the final clip, uh, which... I know why you want to talk about this one, because it's a swipe at the whole industry, uh, basically talking about best practices. But here's Becky's words, not mine.
5: There are better ways to do forestry. And the way that it's done in Alberta is regressive and incredibly outdated.
0: What did you want to touch on there? Aside there's from everything.
1: No <laughs> yeah. uh, aside from everything, right? I mean, there's, there's no better way to do forestry than the way that we do it in Canada and Alberta. Uh, proof's in the pudding. We've got more of our original forest cover than anywhere else. Um, and and that's because there's a tremendous amount of rigour and there's also a tremendous amount of public accountability because uh, unlike many other places in the world, our lands are publicly owned. Um, There's scientific research collaboration going on every day in this province uh, to make sure that we're doing it the right way. There's community involvement and consultation going on every day Um, and, and and uh, it just made sure that areas that we have that are forest now are going to be forest forever. And I think that if you look at the health of our forest and how much of it we have compared to other places, the proofs of the pudding that it works.
0: Brock, uh, I want to let you know how much we appreciate you reaching out. Um, this show, uh, I mean, if we're not having balanced conversations and if we're not hearing different perspectives, then what's the point? So uh, I, I have no doubt we're going to hear back, probably from CPOS and probably from others. And we'll continue the conversation, but we'll do so, um, I think, having a more fulsome understanding of the points that need to be addressed as part of this public debate. I want to remind people they can check out the website for the Alberta Forest Products Association at loveabforests.com. You can also follow them on Twitter at Alberta Forests. Was there anything that we didn't touch on that you want to mention before I thank you for your
1: time um, I think that I just want to reinforce the pride that folks have in our in our industry um, this is this is the best forest industry in the world and it's because people care so much about it um, and if you look at the results from both from the, the sustainability of our forest which is incredibly high and also from um, the economic contribution that forestry makes to our economy. There's 40,000 people who have really good jobs in in this province, thanks to forestry and about $400 million uh, this year that our government, or sorry, that our industry paid to government um, that goes to support things like roads and hospitals. So I think that it's, it's a win-win for everyone.
0: All right. Brock Mulligan uh, from the Alberta Forest Products Association. Thanks for your time, Brock. Thanks so much, Ryan. Yeah, you bet. Uh, Real talkers, as mentioned, we expect to hear from many of you. Uh, following this interview which is great i'm going to acknowledge that on a lot of this stuff i'm hearing points made over here and i'm hearing points made over here and i think that probably a pretty standard response for the average civilian is to take some time to process what we've heard and better understand it and more than anything i think the sign of a, a decent interview anyway is that we wind up with even more questions You know, I mentioned I was at that Ayla Brooke show last night. A guy comes up to me, didn't even tell me his name, didn't catch his name. It was in passing, but he comes up, we bump fists, and he says, promise me one thing. I said, what is it? He says, stay on the coal story. I said, yeah. I said, we're going to stay on a whole bunch of stories. He goes, but stay on the coal story. I said, okay. And he just kept walking. I was like, you know what? He's putting some trust in us that we're going to continue to drive that conversation. Same here with forestry. Now we've heard from the Alberta Forest Products Association. Now you know where to find us. The best way to get in touch with us, if you want to make sure we see it, is talk at ryanjesperson.com. That's the email address. It goes to Hoyles. goes to myself. Of course, you can also reach out to us on Twitter, our official account at Real Talk RJ and our hashtag at Real Talk RJ. That hashtag is powered by the team at Park Power, as you know offering internet, electricity, and natural gas services across the province of Alberta right now. If you use that promo code 2021-REALTALK, bring in your business over there, which is super easy to do, by the way, on the website. You can choose where you get your internet, electricity, and natural gas. Why not support the team that's supporting us, quite frankly? When you bring your business over, 2021-REALTALK is going to get you $70 off your first bill. A reminder... On the electricity front, they take 10% of their profits and they push them back to charities. And you get to choose which one, by the way, from a pretty decent-sized list. Along, I think there's about 10 of them on their website at parkpower.ca. Also, a shout-out to the teams at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. You know what I'm thinking? Is like almost every sponsor mentioned that we're doing today, I'm realizing how they tie in to producers. Have you noticed that? Even talking about forestry, even talking about agriculture, I mean... It's relevant everywhere. I mentioned my cousin's dairy operation. Here we are talking about Dairy Queen. I I mean, nothing I'm offering is profound. But this is just the way that we, you know, we remind ourselves of the relevance and the importance of these conversations. Without Canadian dairy producers, there are no Kit Kat blizzards. Mm -hmm. Maybe say no more. Do I need to say any more than that? I don't think I do. The Kit Kat blizzard, obviously a fan favorite, including for this guy. If you swing by and bring your business to the Dairy Queens in Palisades Nemeo, Newcastle, Westmount, Y Gardens, and Baseline Road, you let them know that Real Talk sent you. This is something we've come to look forward to every single Wednesday. Every week, right at that middle point, we take a trip to the mountains, courtesy of the team at Tourism Jasper. It's one of our favorite features, My Jasper Memories. This feature this week, my Jasper memory, the iconic Canadian experience of canoeing in Jasper. The team Tours Tourism Jasper, from time to time, will phrase something in a way that makes me realize the art form of communication and talking about the mountains. When you really nail it, you nail it. May I read this to you? Canoeing is to Canada what cheese curds are to fries and gravy. I'll just let that hit you in waves. Let's just savor it. I mean, I was trying to do a bit of a canoeing pun there, but it didn't... I think I think I could have done better. I mean, waves are really... lap that up. Waves, maybe... Well, let's just say the jobs at Tourism Jasper are safe for now. If you're heading out to Jasper, lucky enough to be heading out to that part of the country, a canoe tour is a way to give you that extra special stress-free experience perfect for both novices and experts from singles and couples and families if you want a bit more independence of course you can go with guided tours but canoe rentals at some of jasper's most beautiful lakes are a way to get away from it all and spend that solo time number one it's authentic it's the authentic small mountain town experience There's one guiding company in particular, Wild Current Outfitters. They have these voyageur canoes. The owners handcrafted these canoes themselves. The tour includes canoeing to shore for treats and hot drinks and summer day swims or autumn campfires. I mean, just amazing. You've also got the chance to spot wildlife from the lake. Nothing to block those views. So, I mean, you could see osprey. If you're lucky enough, you'll hear the call of the loon. I'm thinking of the opening sequence of Weed Kings by the hip right now. That is like the most Canadian sound. Muskrat, beaver, you never know. Pyramid Lake's a great birding area. And of course, if you get really lucky, you might see moose bear, elk, deer, wolves. Maybe a couple of them together. This is a perfect way for households that want some outdoor space to themselves. In the morning, it feels like you got the entire lake to yourself. If you've done it before, you know. We're taking a canoe out there. There's not a chance I'm telling you where we're going, but I've got it circled on the calendar and I cannot wait. You've got canoe rentals available at Pyramid Lake, Lac-Bauvert, at the Fairmont Jasper Park Lodge, and at famous, of course, world-famous Moline Lake. You can learn more by checking out jasper.travel slash Realtalk. We're so proud of this partnership, jasper.travel slash Realtalk. You can learn more about what we're talking about today. Plus, you can watch our past features one of the favorite developments that we've seen over the weeks that we've been doing this is the audience engagement and when you hashtag my jasper and RealTalkRJ rj together it winds up on our radar and we're more than happy to share some of the beautiful images you've shared from weeks past look at this photo absolutely stunning arriving at moose lake look at this fella beautiful brown bear stunning image captured there how about this one that was shared with us just a few days ago june 6 this beauty of a grizz coming over the hill traffic stopped a stunning image of that apex predator what a beautiful bear that is and i loved this one that jumped out too look at this photo are you kidding me this moose dusted with snow We want to see these photos. We'd love to hear about your Jasper memories in particular. I'd love to hear about your family canoe trips. You can post your photos on Instagram or Twitter. Make sure you hashtag my Jasper and real talk RJ, my Jasper memories presented by the team at tourism Jasper. I always find this is like, that's like my mental health moment for the week (laughs) or one of them. Anyway, my Jasper memory. We've got that, that, that acoustic guitar going in the background. We're looking at these amazing photos and, uh, beautiful stuff
2: agreed no argument here i got nothing well it's kind
0: of you know and what i like is we have a show that we're not going to ignore the fact that we're talking about forestry and logging and we're going to talk about tourism in the mountains because everything works together and there are lots of gray areas in life and lots of complexities and nuance and people's priorities are reflected in different ways and uh, i like having these conversations where you know, we force ourselves to confront different things. On the forestry front, for example, on the logging front, I just had a guy come by yesterday and help us out with some home improvement. Right. And uh, he used quite a bit of lumber. And I'm sitting there, and it was not lost on me as I'm watching him work with a cold lemonade. And, uh, <laughs> Kick back. <Yeah. laughs> but I'm sitting there going, I'm talking about forestry tomorrow. And here I am as a consumer grateful that there are people out there doing that. Right. I mean, this is not, and and the point that Brock was just making there from the Alberta Forest Products Association. No, obviously, it's, it's a group that represents industry. So they have their mandate, and they have their perspective, and everybody understands that, okay? But he was quick to point out, and we hear this oftentimes, the number of people that are employed in that industry. And I do think that we need to point out the obvious that pretty much everybody uses wood in one way, shape, or form. Pretty much everybody does. And I think that that's an important thing to acknowledge when we have these conversations. Sam, I can tell you're chomping at the bit. (laughs) It's
2: just like squirming in his chair.
0: I can't ignore it out of the corner of my eye. What did you want to say? Oh, I I just like I've been thinking about this a lot because I'm doing a, a, a small well, actually a fairly large home
2: renovation right now. And I need to reframe a couple of walls and I need to re- take out a wall. And lumber is you know, crazy expensive right now. And, and forestry is a little bit stretched. And, and uh, I am reusing studs. I'm pulling them out of one wall and rebuilding them. That's into another great. Wall. And I've never done this before. And it feels sort of nice and sustainable and better than throwing them in the back of a pickup and, and, and hauling them to a landfill. So, yeah.
0: And I think that more, I mean, and there could be a number of reasons why you might do that. Right. I mean, number one, just the idea of reduce, reuse, recycle. And then number two, the the prohibitive nature of the cost right now of wood. I mean, for perspective, and I've not shopped for plywood this year, so I'm going on secondhand information. Well, a buddy of mine told me I think it was one hundred and eight bucks a sheet the other day, he told me.
2: But prices are coming down, are they? Yeah, there is there is a trend downward now. I mean, as far as like how long will that take to trickle down and come come to the you know the home improvement store? We'll will see. Yeah. Um. I mean, the construction industry is uh, generates a lot of garbage, so it's you know it it's about Rip it out, get get the new thing. Um, it's easier. So kudos to you, Sam. Holy, reusing?
0: Um, There's no, uh, I mean, in, in a lot of circumstances, I mean, we're in a, in a heritage home. I mean, our house is more than 100 years old, so it's a bit of a different circumstance, but... We've had contractors come in and, and a lot of the big beams that you can see from the basement. These are like solid fur. Yeah. And, and they've said to us, like, you can see the uh, contractor's eyes will widen and say, even if we do come in and pull these out, we're not getting rid of these. Like people are finding ways to repurpose it because that is so valuable. And that's the type of stuff that you can't even really procure anymore. But I do think that there's more of an appetite. Uh, to to have more. I mean, I know construction companies that have positions. I mean, they employ people in Mm. positions of determining how they can be more sustainable, right? Because it obviously cuts their cost. And also, I think that the public is getting to a point where there's that expectation, you know, more so than ever before. I mean, what did Brock say? He said something about, I don't remember the exact words, because anybody that operates on the land, basically, he said, will be subject to more public scrutiny, which is true, right? Whether it's mining or forestry or oil and gas or anything else, I mean, people are even having bigger conversations about fisheries and and I mean, yeah, you know, I mean, it, it just depends what I think, what part of the country you're looking at or what you're talking about. There is an industry in any part of the country that people will be scrutinizing uh, members of the public, maybe not with full knowledge, mm. and I think that that's part of the role that we can play is talking to people from many different backgrounds and many different perspectives and ultimately having a continuing conversation so we can better understand some of the factors at play and maybe how some of the concerns are, are being addressed.
2: Yeah, I just, to me, it, I, I was kind of rubbed the wrong way around talking around jobs. Like, it's a, it's a job creator. Yep. And... Like, that doesn't mean that it's it necessarily needs to stay as is. Um, there is, you know, the idea that we have to transition. And just because we've always done it doesn't mean we need to always do it.
0: Another fair point.
2: Um, so, and the idea of enforcement and saying that, you know, there are regulations, they're really stringent um, – As we've seen with a variety of different things happening in this province, enforcement has not necessarily been the strongest on public land or in public areas. Let's
0: spell it out. There are hundreds of thousands, if not millions of Albertans that have concerns about who is overseeing this file. Mm -hmm. Minister Jason Nixon, Minister of Environment and Parks. I mean, he called for a suspension of monitoring in the oil sands through the course of the pandemic. We talked to expert voices. Uh, Many of my conversations about this were on a previous radio show. You may have heard that I hosted and people were saying uh, there's really no justification for suspending this monitoring. It actually makes zero sense and it has nothing to do with COVID-19. And quite frankly, it's bullshit. Uh, That's what people were saying. So uh, I think that this government, I don't think this government has trust issues with the electorate of their own making, of their own making and of their own doing 100% undeniably. Uh, there's been for a for a government that while in opposition hammered away at the governing New Democrats for a lack of consultation on things like the farm safety bill bill six. That's probably one of the biggest examples or at least the most prominent ones. Uh, this government has done an even worse job of consulting with the public. And I think that if you were to get people to speak frankly and plainly, many people would tell you that they're under the impression that the only people that this government are consulting with are donors. And industry representatives and not members of the public, whether we're talking about curriculum or coal mining or water rights or forestry or anything else. So it's a very valid point you make. And it's one that I'm sure that will be a recurring theme as we continue to hear from real talkers who hear that interview with the AFPA the Alberta Forest Products Association, or anything else we talk about on the show, we always want to hear from you. We get emails, uh, dozens of them every day, and we really appreciate that because it goes a long way in shaping this show's editorial journey. Before we move on, I'm really excited to talk to Dr. Michael Hart from the University of Calgary. He's the Vice Provost of Indigenous Engagement. Uh, We're going to talk about indigenization of a university campus. That coming up in just a second, but I want to remind you that from August 20th to 22nd of this year, our home city, Alberta's capital city, the city of Edmonton is proud to play host to the World Triathlon Championship Finals. You can learn more about it at edmonton.triathlon.org. You can learn about the significance of hosting the World Triathlon Championship Finals. You can learn more about the Corporate Challenge. You can learn more about Canadians that are competing here. And get on your radar and of course how you can get involved in so many different ways whether it's volunteering whether it's the young people in your life maybe you instill a love for this grueling and impressive sport or even if you're just interested in seeing some of the world's best go head to head you can find more about the world triathlon championship finals at edmonton.triathlon.com We also wanted to remind you that the team at Kubi Energy right now is so proud to be partnering with us. I talked to Jake and Adam and their whole team over there. They were so excited at how many entries we received for the Real Talk Net Zero Solar Contest. Well, right now, Real Talkers, it is over to you. If you saw our positive reflections, if you heard it on Monday, you know that we've got our top three finalists for that free solar install. No strings attached. Somebody's going net zero or as close as net zero, as close as we can get them to there without a single penny spent here's how you cast your vote you go to RyanJesperson.com and click on question of the week that's presented by our official research and strategy partners at y station you go through you tell us how you feel about solar sustainable energy we want to pick your brains a little bit and get a sense of where this audience is at have you gone in that direction already are you thinking about it if not how come what are some of the barriers standing in the way The final four slides of our question of the week this week feature our three finalists and then a vote. And at the end of this week, we're going to tally them up late Sunday night. Monday, we will be rather Tuesday. We'll be observing the long weekend. On Tuesday morning, we will announce the winner of the Real Talk Net Zero Solar Contest presented by our friends at Kubi Energy. So what is indigenization? What does it mean? What does it look like put into practice? What are the factors that need to be considered? Dr. Michael Hart is the Vice Provost of Indigenous Engagement at the University of Calgary. Uh, Previously, he held a Canada Research Chair in Indigenous Knowledges and Social Work through the University of Manitoba. He's a citizen of Fisher River Cree Nation, uh, a First Nations reserve located approximately 200 kilometers north of manitoba's capital city winnipeg dr hart before we dig into this i want to note that you were to join us on june 21st that morning we experienced devastating technological glitches and we left you hanging and i'm grateful that you agreed to come back and speak with us it's really nice to see your face on the show today
6: I truly appreciate the opportunity to be here, and uh, I fully understand about the 21st, so uh, just glad for this opportunity that we could connect now.
0: You bet. Well, it's such an important conversation. Let's jump right into it. What does indigenization mean?
6: That's a, a huge question, so uh, <laughs> I'll give you uh, the uh, the brief synopsis of, of uh, both the general understanding and, and how we're looking at it here at the University of Calgary. There's no one clear definition of indigenization. It is uh, a concept that has some general parameters, I would say. And generally, it's uh, in relation to matters of uh, colonialism here in Canada, settler colonialism. It's important to understand settler colonialism and, uh, and its dynamics in order to understand indigenization. Settler colonialism has to do when one particular group is in the positions to make decisions, to implement those decisions and indeed determine aspects of another group's life and direction. We have that in Canada, whether it's through the Indian Act, whether it's through uh, particular policies, whether it's through an organization's attention or lack thereof of uh, the Indigenous populations in Canada. So in Canada, then, we have uh, one group making and determining uh, some life projections for Indigenous peoples and that being government in Canada and and other newcomers and to be newcomers, anyone who came from this morning to a few hundred years ago. So in light of that, we recognize that there's changes that are needed, significant changes, whether it has to do with the structures or systems, or whether it's uh, us as individual citizens within uh, within Canada. These changes include then uh, making sure there's opportunity to hear Indigenous peoples, opportunities to come to understand Indigenous worldviews, Indigenous practices. It includes recognizing that We have our own ways as various nations across the countries, our own ways of interacting, our own ways of going forth in terms of uh, our aspirations. And so it's taking the time to kind of understand those, particularly of the nations in, in the region in which people are residing. For us here then at the University of Calgary, indigenization involves recognizing these dynamics, recognizing the history that Indigenous peoples and Canada have uh, shared a history of uh, oppression as as demonstrated through uh, what we're hearing now about uh, uh, graves that are unmarked and being found uh, alongside residential schools, recognizing that there's many, uh, many horrible wrongs that have happened. So it's recognizing this history, but it's also recognizing the history that uh, indigenous peoples have been a- great ideas, have implemented great ideas prior and during the time of in, uh, non-Indigenous peoples being here, and that we have our structures, our value systems, our belief systems, our practices that uh, have shaped us in back in the time in very positive and healthy ways, and we have ways that it's helping uh, significant segments of our populations in in very positive ways. So in other words, it's recognizing both the the history of the challenges, but to recognize that we have something uh, to offer our own communities as well as offer Canada. In light of that, and here in University of Calgary, what we're doing, is we speak about walking parallel paths. Mm. We speak about the processes and the practices and the policies within the university and uh, recognizing that Indigenous peoples may want to look at some of these things in, uh, in, very, uh, in their own ways. They would be comparable, parallel. Um, and a simple example is, is how meetings are conducted. There's some parallels that are there, but it also means uh, how do we look at admissions in ways that reflects Indigenous practices and the values and perspectives so that what we've done then is create space for indigenous participation in university where they, where we feel welcome. We feel like this university is part of our own as well. And so we're not there yet, but we continue to work on uh, in a variety of areas to, to create this space, this ethical space for indigenous peoples presence in relationship with non indigenous peoples in university.
0: Dr. You're, you're, um, My understanding is that you you were appointed to this vice provost role. It's a five-year term that could be renewable. But but back on June 1st of 2018, which, of course, was well before, do I call it this country's awakening? I mean, I hate to put it that way because we've spoken to so many different people uh, that have said survivors of residential schools and knowledge keepers and elders and storytellers have been basically screaming about this and let me not put it that way it sounds unflattering i want to show obviously respect but they've been they've been testifying about this as part of the truth and reconciliation commission for for years and, and canadians should not be surprised for whatever reason i think it's part of the way that humans process things numbers started to resonate so when i say 215 or or 751 the, the people know exactly where in the country i'm talking about almost like area codes um mm-hmm has your position or your mandate or your understanding of your role or the interest in your role changed over the past number of months?
6: I I would, I would say yes, but I don't want to discount the significant interest that the institution had about indigenization, about our, uh, our indigenous strategy at Tapito. Um, so we have had, significant participation in addressing uh, our Indigenous strategy at the university since I've been here and before. Um, that it was developed in a way that clearly involved Indigenous peoples of the region, uh, clearly included the leadership, included over uh, all segments within the university. So there was significant significant commitment to its, the establishment of the strategy and con- that commitment continued in its implementation. So I, I don't want to downplay the, that commitment. With that said, it has increased in terms of people having a new level of understanding. And what I would suggest, it's a, it's a heart level of understanding where people recognize uh, that these issues... Aren't something that's long ago. These issues are right now and impacting people right now, and not impacting just indigenous peoples, but people all over. So people have this emotional connection to the whole matter at this point. The challenge right now is is how do we address that emotional connection? And what I mean by that, uh, people are searching for a way to go forward that's respectful and supportive. For example, I I do believe that there's many Canadians out there, many people from throughout the world that are residing here in Canada that want to move forward in a supportive, respectful way. Um, And there's learning needed to to help them understand how do you do that. And so we were engaging in that more and more. What I find is more people are reaching out, trying to to understand what that means uh, and wanting to participate in creating positive change within the university. This isn't to deny that there's still challenges within university and in Canada where people are in uh, positions where they don't still do not want to believe or do not want to uh, recognize the impact of these things. But I I do believe that there's a far larger segment who clearly wants to make uh, a new path forward for all people.
0: I saw I was reading something online the other day and I wish I could remember where it was so I could cite the source. But it was someone's candid comment um, in particular, talking about curriculum, but but they said, you know what, there needs to be more learning. And there needs to be more teaching and more understanding around indigenous history pre-contact with non-indigenous people or or pre-settlers to cut to the chase. And I, I know that it, it seems like an obvious statement, but I sat there and I'm thinking and as I'm reading this and I'm thinking back to my own learning journey or I'm thinking back to even what we talk about. And, and oftentimes it's 100 percent like. People's understanding of indigenous people is like, you know, in the United States, like when Christopher Columbus discovered and it's like, well, there are people here for thousands of years. And really, I don't think that there's any. And I mean, maybe someone can point me to some curriculum and taught in some grade where there's some teaching about the history pre that period. But I mean, when it all comes down to it, uh, is it safe to say that everyone can agree we need to do better there?
6: I have no doubts that we could do better there. Yeah. Uh, I, the lack of awareness, for example, of uh, cities in both North and South America, whether it's large cities in Central America or smaller cities of tens of thousands in North America, just as an example, people aren't aware that they existed here and that they're comparable and many times greater than what resided in most other parts of the world. Uh, partic- uh, so. Without recognizing some fundamental things like that, the contributions of foods that continue to exist today, when we look at the world's food staples, that uh, a significant portion—some estimated, approximately two-thirds of that portion—is foods indigenous to the Americas. When we look at um, the the operations, the understanding of human anatomy in South America, when we look at um, the uh, the democracy systems of the, the Hona Deshaunee peoples that was here prior to uh, these times. There is so many contributions that of Indigenous peoples have made that we don't recognize or understand them. And as such, we don't know the degree of, uh, of the oppression that has been in place and what we continue to miss uh, by not creating the change and creating these educational opportunities on, on these and, and other significant matters. So yes, I'm I'm fully of the opinion that uh, there's not enough education to truly understand uh, the impacts of what have happened and uh, what we potentially could be doing differently.
0: Michael, if I know anything about this audience, uh, they're going to be listening to what you're saying and they're going to be earnestly and sincerely looking for ways to implement the concept in their own lives. What does indigenization look like within a family unit or in a household or as part of a corporate culture or as part of a neighborhood? Or can, can you give us ways to kind of extrapolate the concept?
6: So there's, you addressed various levels, individual, family, community. So uh, I'll look at those uh, in that regards. On an individual level, the first piece is to recognize how open or unopen we have been and whether we have opened up to new ideas, new understandings. And so there's that self-reflection process that we each need to go through uh, about that openness, willingness to challenge some of our conclusions that we may have held before and come to realize that a lot of these conclusions are based upon very limited or unfounded uh, information. So that self-reflection is something that we all need to go through as individuals. Um, the the piece that comes along with that is the willingness to learn. So whatever format that may be best for an individual, sometimes it's talking with other people of the community, sometimes that's reading, sometimes that's uh, podcasts, sometimes that's uh, um, shows that may are are informative documentaries. Um, So that piece becomes important in terms of self-directed learning. It becomes important to be critical on the kind of material you're accessing, because as we know, there's a lot of material that's out there that's uh, not well based on on anything. So we have to be cautious about the kind of material we're looking at. Uh, on a family level, it, that openness ideally is going to expand. Um, I'm not of the view that we need to challenge everybody and push uh, when we have someone who's closed. Um, I come from part of our traditions is that you approach people when that openness is demonstrated. And so that's what we do with our family members, that uh, we're going to get further ahead when we could either model some of that openness with having the books that we're reading available, uh, share, asking someone to sit and listen to a podcast with us. So it's that creating that openness within a family to engage in discussion and uh, to share ideas that we're learning within a family and on a community creating those kinds of events potentially about uh, that create learning opportunities for people
0: um Michael do you do you do you feel that i mean as 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 you look around either in the in in the circle close to you or even as, as a bigger part of the national conversation do you, i mean cuz i oftentimes make the assertion that i feel like this country had this awakening i do believe that people are more sincerely Open and 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 yearning for a type of conversation. I look, you know what I mean. There's there's a house just down the street from me, Michael, that swapped out their Canadian flag for a simple orange silk that's hanging right now from their flagpole, and that that just to me is just one example of what one person is doing to indicate that openness that you described. Do you see that bigger picture, and do, and do you think that it's a, a longer lasting type of a commitment?
6: I so first of all, I, I do see. Uh, us as a nation swinging on a pendulum back and forth on the matters and looking at it but what i do what i would say is that right now the pendulum is swung uh, more than other times so i think there's more people engaged more people wanting to uh, to learn to be involved in doing acts such as hanging a, 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 a orange cloth hanging t-shirts uh, that we're engaged in these acts to keep the 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 importance of the matter at hand, up front. Um, I, I'm I'm not, I, I'm pragmatic. I do imagine this is going to change at some point, but I don't think it's going to get anywhere near it was before. Uh, I think there has been a significant shift in the country. Um, and I, I, I do believe that we'll keep growing in this regard in terms of the relationship between Indigenous, non-Indigenous peoples. We continue to need to be challenged on a number of things quite a number of things. So I'm yeah. not naive in that piece
1: either. You
0: know what? I, And I'm seeing it in, I mean, just this is all anecdotal, but I, I, I don't know how many interviews, Michael, that I've done about pipelines over the years and consultation processes and why Northern gateway didn't happen and why energy East didn't happen. And some of the barriers that stood in the way of Keystone XL. And there's a whole bunch of different conversations to be had. And, and each one uh, has its own standalone issues, but, But if I'm being honest, um, I sat in front of a text line for a lot of years where a lot of people would share their feelings about indigenous consultation on pipelines. That's just one example. And Mm -hmm. I see in off air conversations that I have with people with vested interests in pipelines, I see change there. And I feel like, and this is anecdotal, but I feel like people are starting to recognize the importance, the imperative nature of those types of consultations. We had a letter, someone wrote an email to the show a couple of weeks ago, we read it on the air, somebody talking about how their perspective had changed uh, in, in first response. It was a letter from a fireman who wrote in and he was ashamed of the attitudes that he had perpetuated in the fire hall. Around dealing with indigenous members of the community and he talked about how his greater understanding or his personal awakening around the impact and the generational impacts of residential schools is now completely transformed the way that he's seeing some of the people that he interacts with in the course of his duties i mean these are these are anecdotes but i see it and it's a huge encouragement
6: i i i would fully uh, agree with you, I think there is significant changes. Uh, I don't discount anecdotal uh, information. Uh, I see it's another important piece, and in, in particular, understanding the stories of what people have gone through, understanding their the life stories, uh, becomes that way to touch the heart, the way to create change. Um, when we just rely on the numbers, there's a tendency to remain in our head and just to be another fact that we're trying to, to address, incorporate. But with these stories, we can't miss the impact it has on, on us going forward. Um, I do see some of the same things that you're sharing. I do think there is some significant changes. Uh, what we have to do is try to uh, to use that energy, that attention, that commitment to uh, move forward in the best way pos- uh, possible
0: absolutely uh, let me ask you dr hart this in closing to i mean to sort of to to bring this conversation full circle at least for now and not just at the university of calgary but in the context of post secondary campuses uh, over the next i don't know let's say 10 years or whatever you pick the time frame how how different do you think they'll look and how do you think some of this you know this conversation around indigenization and some of the stuff that and i'm not calling your work simply theoretical but some of these conversations for people, we're going to start thinking about how we can make changes in our own lives or how we can reflect our values as individuals and as a nation. How do you think university campuses will look different 5, 10, 15 years from now?
6: Well, one of the things I, I think this process will do is open us up to uh, new ideas and new experiences. So I, I think that we'll have a broader um, broader opportunities to engage in these ideas and experiences that we don't currently have in many places right now. Uh, When you start bringing Indigenous perspectives, Indigenous uh, worldviews, practices, experiences, what you'll have is that you have a new perspective to question, whether it's the research, whether it's what's going on in in courses, et cetera. a new way to question that and new way, new directions to advance uh, what we're learning, what we're researching, what we're engaging in. Uh, We'll also have new relationships that are present. So beyond the very visible changes that I imagine will happen, so for example, we have a new main campus landscape plan that, sh- that speaks about this parallel path and Indigenous contributions visibly within the landscape. I think there's going to be changes within uh, within classrooms. I think there'll be changes in uh, in the scope of what universities uh, will be doing and engaging in. So I do think there'll be significant changes that's uh, inclusive of Indigenous ideas. Indeed, Ideas even beyond indigenous peoples that will look uh, at peoples who have different life experiences uh, in a new way that's that will be receptive to these other ways of going forward in life. Hmm.
0: Dr. Michael Hart is the vice provost of indigenous engagement at the University of Calgary. We're grateful that you made some time for us this morning. You've given us a ton to think about and, and I'm really grateful for it. So thank you.
6: I'm truly honored to be here. I'm, I'm thankful for your interest and your continued support in helping this change go forward.
0: You bet. Thank I look forward to further again. conversations, doctor. We'll talk to you again. That's Dr. Sure. Michael Hart. Uh, and you can read more, of course, about what they're doing there by checking out the University of Calgary's website at ucalgary.ca. The kind of the theme of today's show, which if we're being honest, is the theme of every day show. I feel like I, I almost, even though I'm doing these interviews, I need to go back and listen to them again. You know, because mm. there's a there are a lot of things that are just said, not not in passing, but I mean these amazing points where I scribble down notes. I mean he he talked about this willingness and and he talked about part of his I mean the 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 Cree culture that idea of. He says, We don't want to, what was the word he used? But he, you don't want to like aggressively kind of like hammer down points on people or be confrontational. We don't want to wait till people are open yeah, and they, willing to, desiring to learn.
2: Yeah, they have a, they demonstrate an openness yeah. and, a, and a willingness. I really appreciated
0: that. He's got this like calm demeanor, by the way. I, yeah. You know what I mean? It's just like, listen to that guy talk for a long time. Um, if you have a suggestion or if you have an angle, That you'd love to see us take on We're always looking For subject matter That will give us More to chew on And digest The show is named Real Talk For a reason you know where to find us To talk at ryanjesperson.com These shows happen Because we have support of amazing Real Talk builders Like the team at Local Waste If you check them out online at localwaste.ca You're going to see a couple of different things Uh, Number one A way to request a quote. So if you're an entrepreneur, a business person, you're looking for maybe a new service provider when it comes to waste services, you can get in touch with them and find out what a business relationship would look like. But there's also opportunities to contact them through their Edmonton or Regina offices. This is a family owned business that is open to doing business with other entrepreneurs. In your community, you see an opportunity to maybe bring local waste there Mikel, Lauren, Chris, they're all ears. You can find them online at localwaste.ca. And don't forget, coming up on Friday, Trash Talk, presented by Local Waste. You can send your rants in to us for consideration. We bring you the week's best as we wrap up our broadcast Friday mornings. Westworld Computers is who we thank for the... Software The hardware Sam am I using the right words Not so much the software The the hardware The hardware for sure The hardware See I'm already out of my depth And I'm using like three words About computers And it's already time for me To stick to the script The team at Westworld Computers, we talked to them about the type of show we're going to do, and they prescribed us what we needed here in studio. It's what they've been doing as a family-owned business for more than 40 years. You can book your service appointment. You can shop online right now at westworld.ca. They'll ship across the country. And also a big shout-out to our friends at Athabasca University. It is Canada's online university. Now, I know many of you, especially post-secondary learners, have had a digital experience with your studies last year. Athabasca U was well-positioned for the pandemic they are truly an online university so so their their offerings were not temporary and, and they weren't rushed and they weren't slapped together it's what they do every day and it's what they'll continue to do even when other aspects of your life go back to in person your schooling doesn't have to you can learn more about their world class accredited online programs and courses by visiting athabaskau.ca today As mentioned earlier, we're going to check in with the front line at the Ferry Creek blockade that's coming up tomorrow. Another angle on forestry in Canada. We're going to talk to David Robertson about an opinion piece on how Manitoba's premier is setting back conversation on residential schools. And a reminder on Friday, our roundtable, indigenous artifacts in museums. Where should they wind up? Have a great day, Real Talkers. We'll see you again soon. The gun